Tonight we're going to read from Psalm 2, 1 through 11, and Daniel 2, 29 through 36. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of your earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Daniel 2, 29 through 36. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all in the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no man's hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You may be seated. So this week we'll finish up Daniel 2. And as I was preparing notes for this uh, message, and all of a sudden the, uh, the application the, the culmination of this passage felt very timely. It's a very timely message to be talking about the Lord having a, an end, a plotted out actual finish to the empires of the earth, to the nations of the earth. And so uh, as we go through this last half of chapter 2, I think we'll see how, just how applicable this chapter is, given some of world events. Um, I've had lots of conversations with people this week, just wondering what in the world is going on. Some people, depending on what uh, denominational tradition you might be, theological bent. Some people are more freaked out than others. And I think there's a lot of churches in America today who are going over Ezekiel 38, which we aren't doing tonight, by the way. But what I think it is leading us to, and definitely 
refuge, we as a family, is to pray. And I think far too often we look at things that are going on, world events, and we think of them kind of improperly as though uh, it's this ultimate thing. If we can somehow raise awareness or change something that, that, that we can somehow have some, some good happen and, and we get semi-deceived by that because we, we, we usually can't impact a lot of things through awareness or talking about them or bringing them up. But there is a way that we can have impact and that is through prayer. And I think that's one of the things that, that really struck me last week was Daniel going immediately to his friends with prayer, saying, we need, we need mercy, mercy from the Lord in this regard, and we need insight. And so I would invite all of you to, to be praying. We can't, we can't raise money or do anything to really change much if you think about it, but we can pray. We have a God who is active and able and willing to act. And so I invite all of you to pray and to fast. We uh, We do have some people who are in contact with some pastors, some churches over there, and they're seeing the church as is able to serve and to minister in a way that it, it can't during times of peace, if that makes sense. So this thing, while scary and just so sad to see war happen, this might be the thing that God uses in the church over there. And when I say over there, that whole, that whole region... And so I invite you to pray and to fast for, for, the, uh, for grace and peace in Eastern Europe. And uh, if, you, if you wanted to maybe have some touch points, what, how, how should I pray? What, what should I pray? What are some things I should do? Um, we do have uh, Tom and Regina who, who are, are willing to be kind of a point person for that. So they'll be in the, in the back from this perspective, the back, which is the foyer, which is the front. Does that make sense? Yeah. We all know where it is, right? It's, it's between those doors. Uh, they'll be out there after service. So if you just wanted to get a couple of things to think through while you pray this week, um, and if you choose to fast, then um, I would encourage you to talk to them. In addition to that, um, so many different conversations that people are wanting to have. I want to try to see if maybe there's something that we can do in addition to one-off conversations. So I don't know if there's much interest in it, but if people want to meet early before church and, and kind of have some of those discussions, I can prep a couple things and we can spend some time praying. And so if anyone's interested in that, you can talk with me in the, in the back, which is the front, which is over there past those doors. If you, that. So just come and talk with me after and we'll kind of see what kind of interest there might be in doing something like that. All right. Let's pray real quick. Father, I pray as we look in your word that you would allow us to to dig deep, to find some real treasure in your word tonight. I pray, Lord, that we would submit to your word. Lord, as we find these principles, Lord, that we'd be willing to drop our preconceived notions and thoughts and in light of your word, Lord, to, to repent, to turn and to go in a different direction. I pray we'd be willing to do that tonight. We pray for, Lord, the 
your powerful word to enter our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're finishing up chapter two. And in case you were not here last week, just real quick. Last week we did the first half of chapter two. That should go without saying, but I said it. And we talked about four specific principal interactions that took place. And I know for me, it's an easy way for me to, to remember the sequence of things that way. So hopefully that's helpful for you. But the first interaction we saw last, last week was the king as a representative of the lost peoples or nations speaking with the priesthood of the gods, with his group, his magicians and things, and looking for a solution, right? He had a dream. So he's looking for a solution to it. And he laid down the gauntlet. He said, I'm not going to tell you my dream. You need to tell me my dream and then interpret it. And they themselves said, no one, there's no human alive who can do that. You have to actually be speaking to the gods and they're not in flesh. So, so that was that. So the king said, all right, off with all of their heads. And then David, David is not in the story at all. Daniel, sorry. I don't know why I do that. David is a good character, but not related. Daniel, Daniel is then the second, intera uh, second interaction, the covenant man, the man who knows who God is, knows the creator, with his neighbor. And in this, this case, his neighbor is this, is this man who's supposed to be carrying out the king's uh, command to off with their heads. And they have an interaction, and you can tell that there is a relationship that they have. And he gives him more information, and Daniel deals with him very uh, wisely, very gently. And they have a discussion, and this man clearly trusts Daniel. So you have that interaction. He then goes uh, to this third interaction, which is the covenant men and Yahweh, their creator God. So we see this interaction happening to where they ask for mercy Ask God to reveal these mysteries. And God, of course, being a good God, does just that. They then go to the king, and you have this fourth interaction. And we're going to continue this last interaction tonight. That's the rest of chapter 2. But the neighbor, Ancor, and um, the covenant man, Daniel, and the king, representative of lost nations in this case, they have an interaction. So tonight we're going to carry that on. Um, but we're going to um, excuse the neighbor. He, for some reason, is either very quietly sitting in the corner. It would be very interesting to listen, but most likely isn't there. So but we're going to continue with, with this. So we have in, uh, the last half of Daniel chapter 2 is essentially just two sections. One, Daniel actually tells King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. And then the last half is the interpretation. And I guess there is sort of a conclusion, sort of conclusionary repercussions for that interpretation. So it's really just that easy. So let's look at that second half of Daniel 2. Let's start in 29. It was read already. But this is, and I think there's something specific here to, to pull out. It says, to you, O king, Daniel chapter 2, 29, to you, O king, as you lay in your bed, came thoughts that would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So one thing that's really specific here 
is God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He could have given it to Daniel, or he could have given it to some of the prophets that actually were ministering at this time, Jeremiah specifically, already a ministering prophet, could have received this message from God. But none of the prophets did. It was to Nebuchadnezzar. So one of the things to to kind of think about is the fact that God has a plan for the nations. He has a plan for those who are outside his covenant people. He is still interested and concerned with them to the the point of actually having a, a plan. And then revealing that plan to the king. And I think that's a really important thing to realize we didn't have to have this whole thing go on. God could have just given the dream, and then we could have had it in the Bible, and then we would have been good. But he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 30 Daniel says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, uh, uh, any wisdom that I have more than the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So again, Daniel continues to encourage Nebuchadnezzar to think that this Dream was given to him because it was. God has a message for you, and I am just the interpreter. I was just given this message to relay this to you. And I think that's fairly significant to realize that God is concerned with the nations. Verse 31 He goes on, he says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. I'm going to just go through the image real quick, what what was seen here. The image, mighty and exceeding brightness. Some of your translations may have awesome, because it was awesome. But it's sort of the older understanding, which is you saw it and you were awestruck. It was kind of terrifying to see sort of that older understanding of that word, awesome. Exceeding brightness doesn't quite capture it either. Uh, But it stood before you and appearance was frightening. There we go. Its appearance was frightening, which seems to be um, not the full extent of what he saw. It was something that was terrifying. The head of the image was of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and its feet partly iron, and then partly clay. And you looked, and a stone was cut out out not by human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. The iron and clay and bronze and silver and gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36, it says, this was the dream. Side note, very confident with Daniel. This was the dream. 
And then he says, now we will tell you the king's interpretation. But I want to pause there because I think there's something extremely significant in this moment that I think applies to us very directly. And I think for us, it, it also helps us to understand Daniel, his character, who he is a little bit more. So if we remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to understand this dream. It was something that was terrifying. It was poignant. There was something in it. He said, this is real. This is a big deal. I need to know for sure what the interpretation of this dream is. He may have had dreams in the past. And his magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans just gave an interpretation. Yeah, it was good. You should do, you should do this. You should make this decision, whatever. Something was special and significant here to the point where he was willing to kill everybody because he saw them as all fake. He says, none of you can do this, and so I'd rather start over than to deal with any of you. So Daniel said, no, I, I, our God can do it. I know a God in heaven who can interpret dreams, okay? And we know that God can. We know that God can do anything. So he prays with his friends and gets the interpretation. So now he stands before the king and he, he does the impossible part, the part that all the other magicians and everybody else says, no one can do this. It's impossible. And he does it. And very quickly there in verse 36, there's a pivot. The beginning of verse 36, he says, this was the dream. Now I'll tell you the interpretation. Somewhere between the period there, between dream and the word now, there's something incredible to think about. Before the king, Daniel had just accomplished the impossible, and the king knew it. He knew at that moment, Daniel was the only one in the empire or you could say from their perspective, in the world who just accomplished this. No one else could have done this. Do you recognize the power that Daniel has in that moment? He has just told the king his dream, the thing that was impossible. He says, there's a God in heaven that I can talk to at this point, he could have said anything. And the king would have said, all right, let's do it. And I only say that because if you've read ahead, you see what his response is, right? So imagine this. You're Daniel, you and your friends, and the rest of your people that were dragged away from Judah, were brought to Babylon, educated in things that were against your God, against your belief system, but you, were, you still were educated, you believed all these, you, you took those things in, though you didn't believe them, you were educated, they tried to turn you and to make you an example so your other people would follow. So Daniel is there, and for many of us, if we were in that situation, we would say, I will never give in. I'm going to hold on and I'm going to be who God has called me to be. So now he stands before the king. He has now done the impossible thing. What can he say in that moment? 
You know, our God is the only one true God. And so it would probably do you a, a, a good thing if you were on his good side. You should, you should send us back. Have you ever thought about that? That God in heaven who revealed this thing? Let's just get one thing straight. I'm going to give you the rest of it, but you should send us back. He could have done that, couldn't he? He could have sent them all. He should say, you know what? No more incursions in our land. How about that? Daniel was just the first. He and his friends, just the first incursion. There'd be two more incursions by Babylon who would carry more and more people off. How about we just end them? Do you, do you recognize the power that Daniel has right there? He could have done that. Would he be in the wrong? We'd say, oh, most definitely. Daniel can't do that. Daniel wasn't told to do that. But think about us in our situation. How many times are we in a situation to say, I've got this moment. I've got this influence. I should say, and you have your own list of things that you think that you should say, and are they wrong? Is it wrong to send the people back? Is it wrong? Would it be wrong for Daniel to say, how about I tell you the interpretation and then you do me a favor? Would that have been wrong? Think about our own situations. Would we have done that? I mean, really. When you put it in there, put all those pieces in there, and now you're standing with the king, would you maybe have negotiated, done something at that point? I see a few like sparing nods. But I think if we're really honest, I think a lot of us would be like, you know, I may have tried to do something here. And yet Daniel does not. Daniel recognizes his position, recognizes that if God has given the interpretation, that's what God has told him to give. And so he does. Right? I mean, last half of 36 says, so here's the interpretation. So we know it's coming. And if you've read ahead, you know it's there. So now think about who Daniel is. Did he miss an opportunity? Or did he show himself to be so incredibly faithful to have rippling out effects later on? I'm going to lean towards a second. Let's look at the, let's look at the interpretation. So the interpretation, this part here, If you were to, and maybe some of you did, I'm not going to ask for hands. If you were to go into start to look at commentaries or books about this, this becomes a very contested sort of thing for us today. But it's very simple, the time of Daniel. When Daniel is standing there and he gives us interpretation, it is very specific. Verse 37, you, O king, king of kings which if you think about it is just a title of emperor, right? You're a king, and you're a king over other kings. I think sometimes we so deify that title, we forget what it means. So I don't think Daniel here is saying anything out of place. He is the emperor, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory and in whose hand he has given, therefore, uh, who he has given, therefore they dwell, the children of man, the beasts, the field, the birds of heaven, 
making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Uh, sometimes we look at that and say, well, that's, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar would probably receive that pretty well. You're the head of gold. That's a pretty big deal. But notice what he said in the beginning. Who gave it to him? <laughs> God gave you all these things. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, I know you like to think that you are, you are the conqueror. You have accomplished all of these things. What Daniel basically says, and I might add, to his own peril, the position that you currently have, king over all of these other kingdoms, ruling over all of these massive swaths of land, commanding uh, areas that are full of unique beasts. God gave those to you. You're not the conqueror you think you are. But you are the head of gold. Another kingdom, verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet the third kingdom of bronze shall rule over them, over the earth. Verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters things. Remember that. Iron breaks to pieces and shatters things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. Okay, so remember that. And they saw feet with toes, partially potter's clay, partly iron. This should be divided kingdom. Some firmness like the iron, just you saw uh, iron mixed with soft clay. Okay, so we've got essentially five different metallic representations here. So already specifically, God has told Daniel to tell Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold. Okay, so he's the, he's the, he's the tippy top. And, and what we get for the second, and then there's going to be another one that's going to be inferior to you. Basically, what's told here, Babylon is the pinnacle of human empire. The greatest, the grandest, richest. It's gold. What's also interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar is identified with the kingdom. You're the head of gold. The rest of them are kingdoms, but he's identified with the kingdom. And so this is kind of important because we, we establish something for uh, something that can help, a, a prophetic principle that can help us interpret other things later on, specifically Revelation, where kingdoms and kings can sometimes be exchanged one to the other. Just it's a side note. Just write it in the margin there. Come back to it some other day. But that is, that's important to recognize. And he says an inferior kingdom will come after you, the silver one. Uh, what kingdom came after Babylon. Medes and Persians, and it's, sometimes we, we just say the Persians, but it's the Medes and the Persians, and there's a whole, like, there's, there's history to go with that, but you have the Medes and the Persians, and then later on the Persians come to prominence, but initially it is the Medes and the Persians. It's kind of interesting because what's identified in silver is the arms, so you got two, that's pretty neat, works out, Medes and the Persians. What was the third one? You didn't know it was going to be interactive tonight. What's the third one? No, no, the metal. Bronze, oh yes, bronze. Not copper, bronze. Um, we still think these three metals are all very prominent, right? 
Then we just have the Olympics. What are the first three medals that we give out? Gold, silver, bronze. Yeah. Bronze. Now, okay, who, who does this? Who came after the Medes and the Persians or the Persians? Now you can say it. Greece. It was Greece. Okay. They conquered the Persians, right? In a pretty, uh, pretty important time in history. Very important things going on at that time. Um, so important, in fact, that Daniel references them again later. What's the fourth? We're on the fourth one. Iron. Iron smashes. Iron smash. Just remember that. You got iron. Who, who conquered the Greeks? The Romans. Someone said it. The Romans. So the Romans came after. And that, for us, we can look back and we just see the succession of empires, right? Yeah, of course, that makes, that makes sense. What about this after iron thing? So we got the, the, the legs and feet, right? And then we've got, what, what's the last sort of thing? We've got iron and what? Clay, sort of like a potter's clay or like to like a ceramic kind of clay kind of used there, but it's mixed with iron. Have you ever worked with any of those materials? Do those things mix? Can you just like knead them together? No, and that's kind of highlighted here, is the toes, specifically 10. 10 toes, that's important. Remember, it's important, write down. Um, the 10 toes. Iron and clay, and it actually highlights in the interpretation that these are, they don't mix, right? And so you've got all these, these different kingdoms that are going in, in succession. Think of this for Daniel. So Daniel is now giving the interpretation, and he has to stand before the king and say, King, you're, you're pretty great. You're the, you're the head of, of gold. But then pretty much right after you, there's another kingdom coming. And then, you know, more after that. But interestingly, he basically says, you know, king, there's another kingdom coming after you. It's, this is all going to last. That's a pretty courageous message to relay to the king you're standing in front of. One of the things that you will see mentioned in here as, as people greet the kings, they'll say, oh, great king, may you live forever. I don't think any of them really thought that these kings would live forever. But the point is, is that when you greeted the king, you acknowledged all of your subjects hope and wish that you will be king forever. Forever king. That there be no end to your kingdom. And what Daniel says here is, yeah, there's going to be an end to your kingdom pretty much right after you. Courageous man, this Daniel. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 42. I want to talk about these toes real quick, and then we'll talk about the important thing. 42, verse 42 says, And the toes of these feet were partly iron, partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. And as you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron doesn't mix with clay. We have all also come to this conclusion. They don't mix, right? 
in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. So even though we just saw the succession of kingdoms, there's going to come a king, I should say a kingdom, that will, it's going to break this sort of pattern that we're seeing. And it says, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, it had broken to pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay and the silver and the gold. The great God has made known these things. I'm sorry, made to the king what shall come after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Okay, I want to talk about these toes. These toes are weird. Um, and then we're going to get to the stone. The stone is actually the most important part of this whole thing. So the toes, if you, you go to do research on this, what the scholars have said and what they're, they're looking at, it, it kind of depends on when these books were written as to what you're going to get. If you read some books in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it was pretty sure, even in the 90s, it was pretty sure that this is Europe. Right? Because after Rome, what comes after Rome? What conquered Rome? Who conquered Rome? Yeah, Greg in the back. Visigoths, that's it. No, that was uh, many different things brought it down, but there was no kingdom that just kind of replaced it. And some of you, your, his, your, your history buff inside, your inner history buff is welling up, just wants to talk about Byzantium so much, but we're not going to because that is all part of this very weird thing that happened with the Romans. The Roman Empire was not just conquered by some other group. Some parts kind of fell apart. Some parts, you know, they were conquered by these people. This Byzantium lasted for a long time, and then you got the Holy Roman Empire, and then I don't know what's going on after that. So it's not very clean after that, right? All these very weird things are happening. But what the statue is keying in on is actually a well-understood motif that is carried on through a lot of ancient times through different myths and legends and things and has survived up until today. Um, but there's this concept of the Ten Kingdoms, which is highlighted there at the end of that little section there, that there have these ten toes and there are these ten kingdoms. There are people who have looked into... Um, if, if, if this weirds you out, that's fine. But people who have done some research into Atlantic myth or Atlantis myth, have you ever heard any of these things? It's actually pretty interesting. So they say Poseidon had a human wife and he had five sets of twins. Probably would have stopped at the second set. Like, I don't, that's fine. Two sets of twins, we're good. But Poseidon, I don't know. He's a Greek god, so he just kept going. Five sets of twins. So these 10 were said to have ruled Atlantis. These, there were 10 kings that ruled in Atlantis, and then came judgment, and the kingdoms were destroyed. Some of the legends also say it was 10 kings, but it was seven kingdoms. Turn with me to Revelation 13. And I only bring this up because the imagery comes up again. Revelation 13, 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, blasphemous names 
on its head, on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like, uh, like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. There's lots of beasts and stuff when we talk about nations and kingdoms. Anyway. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now we start to dissolve into beast discussion, which if you are keen in your writing, uh, or your, I'm sorry, your reading of Revelation, know that that's sort of one of the big deals of Revelation is the beast. Who's the beast? Just say it. You know it. It's the Antichrist. There you go. Okay. But what you'll notice here is this motif. Here's ten horns. These ten horns correspond to seven heads. Kind of the same legend we got out of Atlantis, but it's this ongoing motif where there's going to be these multiple kings up until the end. And if, um, if anyone has ever done any research into theosophy, this like kind of really new agey kind of, kind of thing, they talk about this a lot. So whether we want to believe it or not, there are a lot of people out there who are studying this, who think this, who are trying to push for some of these things to happen or for these things to be true. But they're looking forward to 10 kings returning again. As Revelation kind of points out, you'll see these 10 kings once again. And it's, the only reason why I bring that up is because when we talk about the rock, it's important. And that's what we're going to do right now. Who's the rock? It says that there's a rock Depending on your translation, it might say something weird, but basically it's a rock that's, that is basically, it's like it's pulled out of a mountain, but it's not cut with human hands, meaning what? Most rocks that we use for something to be useful, we take and we kind of modify or mold or make into a block or make into a round stone. We use it for something. But kind of the point here is that this rock, it's not modified by humans. This is something that is outside of that interaction of humanity. So you have this rock, not cut by human hands, that goes and it strikes at the statue. Where does it hit the statue? The feet, and it's super important that it hits the feet. Who did we say was the legs of iron and the feet? Who, who were that? Who were that? Who were, who were they? Who was that that we said? We're talking about kingdoms, is it plural? It's difficult. But who did we say they were? <laughs> I didn't hear it. <laughs> Sorry. What? Rome. Okay. This rock comes and it strikes. And this rock strikes, and what does the rock do? It crushes, which is cool, because what does it say iron does? Iron crushes. But what did this rock do? Oh, it crushes iron. That's right. And, oh, you, oh Mike, you did it. Man, you, my next point, it's important it hits the feet because what, what is the prophecy we got in Revelation? I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, it said that from the seed of a woman would come one who would be struck at the feet. This whole thing, this whole motif of feet and all these things, it's, it's basically a mockery. It's basically like, oh, so you're going to try to do that to the Messiah. Well, guess what? The rock's going to hit the feet, and you're going to die. You're actually going to get smashed. So that rock comes, and it smashes. And where does it smash? 
during the time of Rome. So who is this rock? Oh, yeah, Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is always the rock, right? Go listen to Petra. You should. That's just, just in general, you should listen to Petra. But this idea, this concept of the rock, Jesus is the rock. And he's the one that smashes. Now, it's, it's kind of important because he smashes during the time of Rome. Think about this. Rome, at that time, the most powerful empire on earth. And you could say, from, even from this, from this explanation, the most powerful empire that ever had been to that point, though not as great as Babylon, was powerful, right? So the rock comes, and it's just a rock, but it grows into what? It grows into a mountain, okay? <clears throat> and then it starts to talk about what happens to the smashed idol. This earth. I said idol. It's an image. Didn't mean to jump the gun on that, but what... Uh, what happens to this metallic statue? <laughs> I, sorry. Everyone answers and it gives good answers, but I don't, I don't hear what everyone says. But you're probably right. Uh, it does what normally happens to smashed metal. It flies away in the wind. That doesn't normally happen, but that's what God does here. They basically blow away like they're nothing. Even though it's very hard to blow away gold and silver and iron, but it blows away. But the point that's made there is it blows away and then no one has any memory of them anymore. No influence, no memory, no thought. It's as though they never existed. They're just blown away. And then the mountain then fills the earth. So a couple things. Someone might ask, where are we in this whole thing? We're somewhere after the smashing, but before the chaff blowing away. Because do we know these empires? Do we, are we still influenced by these empires? I think we could probably make a really good case that, we're in, that we are, um, at the very least, impacted by Greece and Rome still. Right? I mean, Disney made Hercules into a cartoon. Clearly. Right? Clearly, Greece has some sort of impact on us. But the idea is, is that this, this rock that came and struck destroyed that normal succession of kingdoms. I would, I would argue these ten toes are these last vestiges to just finally accomplish something and fizzle and die. We're probably right there, right before them being destroyed and blown away and all the rest of them blown away. We're right there. But what that rock is doing now is growing. That rock, and you could say this, that when Christianity was established, meaning Jesus Christ came to earth, accomplished the task that he was given, which was to redeem mankind. At that point, the kingdoms of the earth were so struck that it did not work the same way after that. Instead, you now have this entity, the church, that is the forward advancing party of a coming kingdom that is there to come and to 
grow and to fill the entire earth. If we think like that, let's go back to Daniel. Daniel is now sharing with Nebuchadnezzar the ultimate end of all human kingdoms. Someday there's going to be a rock that destroys all of this. None of it's going to matter anymore. And that rock is going to fill up the entire earth, cover it, and become a mountain. Now, what Daniel may have keyed in on in giving the interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar may have missed out on, I don't know. We get this mountain again. What's significant about a mountain? I think we've talked about this before, but mountains are actually incredibly significant in Scripture. Think about all the different mountains that are really important. Just name a couple. Mount Zion? Yeah, we sang about it. I feel like it's kind of cheating because we just sang about it. So everybody, yeah, okay, Mount Zion. It's not, okay, you can have points. What other mountain? <laughs> Sinai, there's another one. Hermon. What else we got? Gerizim. Ebal and Gerizim, yeah. So there's a lot of mountains that come up that are actually pretty significant, that they're used in different ways to show different things that are going on or special events. And, and honestly, the rest of the world regards mountains as important places. What normally happens on mountains? You go up into the sky, into the clouds. This is where people go to meet the gods. They go there. Shrines are built on mountains. People go up mountains to have experiences or to go into to meet there. That's why actually the transfiguration was such an important thing too. Jesus went up on a mountain. Where'd the... Uh, Sermon on the Mount happened? If it happened, so there, then their scholars were like, Luke says it didn't happen on a mountain. But what was significant was Jesus was giving a message just like it came off a mountain. They met with God in that message. This was Jesus giving it. Mountains are important and they're significant. And there's one mountain that we don't normally talk a whole lot about because we don't normally think of it like a mountain. But that's Eden. Eden was on a mountain. It talks about it being like a mountain orchard, this beautiful elevated place. It's a place where heaven and earth touched. And it's the place where Adam and Eve were given the command to do what? I couldn't hear you, but it probably was a great answer. We're supposed to, Adam and Eve were supposed to multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. What's so interesting is Daniel goes to a king who has done one of those things. He actually, this is really interesting to think about. He actually did one of those things, right, in his own mind. I already had dominion. So according to the world, people looking at Nebuchadnezzar, he's kind of fulfilling some of these things. But what Daniel is sharing with him is, is, no, 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 no. Something else is going to happen. Something is so big and significant that it's going to blow away everything else that you've ever done and accomplished in that we have someone, we have a one. Daniel may not have specifically identified him that way. We know this one, Jesus, comes and fills the earth. The whole earth becomes 
a mountain. It's exactly what Adam and Eve were told to do. They were supposed to multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, take this Eden thing and spread it out everywhere, which they didn't do. But Jesus will, and he has, and he is accomplishing that goal. What we see here is we have Daniel giving this message to, at that time, the pinnacle of human emperors. Now, we, we, we had Psalm 2 read today here, too. And the reason is, is because it's important to, to recognize that what we see in Psalm 2 is normally the response of kings and kingdoms to Yahweh. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain or conspire? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Who would be his anointed? Jesus. Sunday school answer, you nailed it. It's Jesus. And they say, let us burst apart our, our bonds apart and cast them away, our cords away from us. This is, I think, is the significant thing for us to, one of the things to take and put in our pocket as we leave here. What does God do in response to all of the kings of the earth conspiring against him and his anointed? What does he do? Verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's laughable. To think that the kings of the earth could ever conspire against the Lord. He holds them in derision. In, in derision. Then he shall say to them in his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's your Mount Zion. I will tell a decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. We see the attitude of the kings and the kingdoms. We see God's intention to make the nations the inheritance of the anointed. We see that fulfilled in the dream Daniel gives. And so now we'll look and see the response. So Jan Daniel chapter 2, again, look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. And he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of God and Lord of kings. And the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, Daniel, chief of the Magi. Daniel made a request of the king and appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. This is probably the only deal he struck, right? You know, that's a lot for me to do. <laughs> I got three good guys. I'm going to, let's just make them governor, okay? How about that? Um, what you see here is, Nebuchadnezzar acting completely opposite of Psalm chapter 2. 
he's confronted with the message that not only his kingdom, but subsequent kingdoms are going to be destroyed, laid waste to, and he honors Daniel more so he honors Yahweh. Makes offering, he makes that declaration. And I think it's very significant. Your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. That's incredible. Now I want you to put it in perspective. Just a few Sundays ago, we talked about Judah being invaded and Nebuchadnezzar taking the noble, uh, the noble sons, right? The 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 uh, what would be the next generation of ruling took them to Babylon, and and we know that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go back two more times. It's going to lead to the Book of Lamentations. You need to go cry, go read through Lamentations. All this terrible stuff. And look, but look what God did. All those battles rage and all those things are happening. And what did God do? He took his man and put him before the king. And the king is on the ground paying homage. Does God need a massive army to accomplish his will? You might say here that what God did was actually bring that emperor to a point of submission to Yahweh. In that moment right there, Nebuchadnezzar was conquered by Yahweh. And Daniel didn't have to raise a hand. For one thing, it's significant because that's the emperor. That's crazy. But the other, other thing is also significant. How much can Daniel and his friends rely on the Lord now? We know we're not here on accident. This is not some really bad luck for us that we're here. We're here on purpose. You gave us convictions, Lord, and we're going to live them out. And you can see how the Lord honors that. It's amazing. And so when we pray in regards to human events, in regards to kings and kingdoms, I know we don't have too many kings and kingdoms around, but you know what I mean. When you pray about politics, do we really believe that God actually, truly is on the throne? And do we truly believe that his kingdom will one day supplant, destroy, crush, blow away all the rest. Because I think this, yes, this was given to Nebuchadnezzar. I think Daniel and his friends hung on to this to say God knows what's going to happen. There's a long play here. And God will be victorious. And it's proven out because Daniel watches one of these kingdoms transition and sees these things begin to be fulfilled. This is such an amazing life to watch, Daniel's life as it goes through. And we can see the hand of God at work. And I pray for us that we would remember that and be encouraged by that.
Heavenly Father, we we confess, Lord, to be short-sighted many times. And we see difficulties, we see, Lord, tragedies, we see war, hunger, and famine, Lord, as these evidences sometimes that you are maybe vacant, asleep, far away. And yet what we can see, Lord, as we see in the life of Daniel, Lord, that you are there in the midst of exile. You are there in the midst of suffering. And Lord, no one can stop your plan and no one can resist that powerful grace and mercy of the Lord. Not even King Nebuchadnezzar was safe from your pinpoint message to him, Lord. And we know that these may have just been seeds planted, but that the life that Daniel led, Lord, we will see that they led to fruit. Lord, I pray for us as we live our lives with so many distractions and so many things that could serve to feel like they're crushing us. Lord, I pray that we'd remember that we actually have a God who has already crushed some of the biggest opponents to your gospel and to your kingdom. Lord, we need to remember that we serve a God who is greater than all of our enemies, a God who is greater than all of our circumstances. Father, I pray you make us a people who will stand up in difficulty, who will be faithful when things don't go right or according to our plan. And we will look forward to you fulfilling all of the promises that you've made to us, to your people, to your prophets. Lord, that we might be able to stand and say, that is our God, that is our good king. Isn't he worthy of worship? Lord, I pray you'd make us a people who worship you even in light of great tragedy and suffering. And I pray, Lord, that we would freely offer this knowledge, this, this God, this King, to all those around us. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.